Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to Kentucky World Language Association members seeking information about important events, initiatives, and professional development opportunities. Each month, we will be talking with people in the know about world languages from across the state. Topics range from collaboration to the program review, from ACTFL news to interviews with master teachers. Language Talk is produced monthly by the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. Welcome to Language Talk KWLA. This is your host, Laura Roche Youngworth, and co-hosting with me is Dr. Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby, professor of Russian at the University of Kentucky and producer of this podcast series. Welcome, Jean-Marie. Hi, Laura. Well, today's topic explores a new direction for the Language Talk series. We're going to discuss research. Staying informed with second language acquisition research is not only crucial for world language educators, but it's imperative for continued student growth. And I think today's topic is quite unique because it not only supports language learning, but it also supports immersion settings. That's right, Laura. Our guests today are two of my colleagues at the University of Kentucky who are specialists in second language acquisition. Stace Duberbach, who is an associate professor in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. He directs the Matwell program. He and Alan Brown, who is an associate professor in the Department of Hispanic Studies, are interested in applied linguistics, specialists in second language acquisition, and L2 pedagogy. As a result, we have the opportunity to talk about one of their ongoing collaborative research projects on metalinguistic awareness. Welcome, Stace Now. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Yeah, and thanks for being here. Well, let's begin with the basics. What is metalinguistic awareness? So this is a good question, Laura. Our research is coming out of a project that was conducted by Ellen Bialystok, who's a cognitive psychologist who's very well known in the field of bilingualism. And she talks um, about metalinguistic knowledge, metalinguistic ability, and metalinguistic awareness, and problematizes the uses of those terms. It's very difficult to kind of understand what that really, how, what the difference is between those. In her more, most recent work um, that we have basically replicated with our research, she uses metalinguistic awareness. And so, what is metalinguistic awareness? Well, metalinguistic awareness is part of what we could call executive uh, function, or executive functions, executive functioning. So I thought we would back up and talk about executive functions for just a minute or two, and then drill down and talk a little bit more about what, how metalinguistic awareness fits into the picture and how it relates to bilingualism, okay. which is what we're, what we're about. So I, I, I brought with me, and I'll just read a sentence or two, from our colleague here at the University of Kentucky, actually in the MCL department, Francis Bailey. He um, works a lot with cognition, and this is what he has to say about what the executive function system is. He says, executive or executive functions are behavioral and cognitive skills that allow us to regulate our emotions, plan, and solve complex problems. And then he gives some examples of how executive functions are manifest in the classroom. Again, talking about cognition. Sustaining attention, picking out relevant data and problem solving, knowing what the goal of a task is, sticking to the goal, organizing ourselves, tolerating ambiguity. These are all executive functions okay. from human cognition. So if we now translate that into what is this, how does metalinguistic awareness, um, what role does it play in executive function? That's where Bialystok comes in and gives us an idea of what that is. And so she does that by talking about metalinguistic tasks. And I think probably the best way to talk about, well, do you want to give them a quick definition? 
when we think of metalinguistic awareness, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, generally, when we think of metalinguistic awareness, we think of the ability to perceive language as a system. Not uh, we can we can separate the meaning from the actual system itself. And uh, interestingly enough, we um, uh, like those who are more metalinguistically aware. Um, are, are aware that things can be called many, it can have many names, or that if a sentence is grammatically incorrect, that you can change it around so it is grammatically correct without changing the meaning. Um, and so it's it's related to executive function in that matter that if you are metalinguistically aware, you can use your executive function to differentiate between what is said and what is meant, so between the form and the meaning. And one, the, one of the ways to talk about this, it's, it's kind of theoretical, it's kind of abstract until we give examples. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. Here are some metalinguistic tasks, and this will get us into our research, might be the segue to our research, I'm not sure. But Bialystok found, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead, that when you give, a, uh, when you give children sentences like this one, apples growed on trees. Okay, what's wrong with that? Do apples grow on trees? Yes, they do. Do you say apples growed or grew? Will you say grew, correct? So that's grammatically incorrect, um, right, grammatically incorrect, semantically felicitous, meaning you can mm -hmm. say that. Both bilingual and monolingual children will pick that up at the same rate. Okay. They'll be able to identify and say, no, that's not right, you can't say that. But when you give a sentence like this, now this, these are both metalinguistic tasks, apples grow on noses, okay, apples grow on noses. So that sounds silly to us, right? Mm -hmm. And hopefully the listeners are laughing at this point. But that's grammatically correct, but it's semantically anomalous. So what she found in her research, and we're going to get into our research in a second, she found that a sentence like that, when you ask, when it's a grammaticality judgment task or a task to decide, is that can you say that or can you not say that? The bilingual kids are better at picking up that, no, you can't say that because apples don't grow on noses, whereas the monolingual... No, you've got it the other way around. So the, because their ability to switch between the two, the bilinguals will say, uh, although it's, the meaning is not correct, right. the grammar is correct. So they'll oh, identify sorry, that right. as okay. being a correct sentence, whereas the non-bilinguals will say, no, that's a bad sentence. Exactly. You can't say that. Okay. They'll, say that that, they'll say that that is grammatically anomalous, not just semantically anomalous. So the bilingual kids will be able to say, that is right grammatically, wrong semantically. Gotcha. Okay, so that that gives you an idea of what semantic, what about what metalinguistic meta awareness is, how we're operationalizing mm -hmm. the construct, right? It's okay, a, it's that's It's a part helpful. of human cognition, and that's kind of how you can bring it out. And I just want to read the sentence from Bialystok that kind of finalizes. It says, part of the bilingual success on these tasks, the ones we just mentioned, was an advantage in the selective attention to appropriate information form and inhibition of misleading information meaning. These processes of attention and inhibition are part of executive function. So the ability to attend to what you need to and inhibit what you don't need to attend to or what would be mm -hmm. distracting, given the task. Very deep. At, for some reason, this is ringing Chomsky in my mind. Is, does that have any um, slight... He wasn't so much into cognitive stuff. Cognitive, he more, but he, he looked at... universal grammar. Yeah, but he looked at if a... Someone can understand a sentence being yes. grammatically. Grammatical yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so that's very interesting. What sparked Charles' interest in this? Oddly enough, it was it was Bialystok's study. When I read it, I, I called Alan and I said, "Hey, this would be fascinating to do in uh, one of our 
schools nearby in Liberty that's an immersion school because of the different context. So uh, we could replicate the study in a different context. Her study was originally with French bilinguals in Canada that spent 100% of their day in French. And right. as you know, the students in Liberty, they spend 50%, theoretically 50% of their day in Spanish and 50% yeah. in English. So, so we thought we've got a really neat thing because in Fayette County we have an immersion program, but it's a different model and it's a different language and it's a different sociocultural context than what you see in Canada in the French immersion programs. And so Stace contacted me. I read it. We said, we can do this. And then, of course, it was a ton of work. Um, you have no idea how much work this has been over two years. So we, we thought, you know, um, and, I should say, and I should say also, Laura, that one important part about this is that metalinguistic awareness is one of the first cognitive benefits that is mentioned when you talk about bilingualism okay. and when you talk about immersion programs. That's one of the first ones. That's one that this research continually seems to support as a clear benefit to bilingualism. And so we thought, what about a 50-50 program? What about emergent bilinguals like at Liberty and Maxwell who honestly aren't so hot? Do, do they see the same benefits? Same benefits. And so there, our question is, how much uh, proficiency do you need in order to start seeing these benefits of metalinguistic awareness among the children? Right. Okay, well, that kind of gets into my next. What were your questions? So does that basically cover the overall? No, we, well, we can, we can articulate those yeah. clearly. Um, I don't know if you want to pull them off of there, or I can... Um, sure. We, we basically had three questions. Um, one, uh, how do the levels of metalinguistic awareness compare between the partial immersion Spanish students and the English-only students? So was there a difference uh, between the third graders... Uh, immersion and the third grader non-immersion and the fifth grader immersion and the fifth grader non-immersion and then we on a metalinguistic awareness task okay. so yeah. those sentences essentially mm -hmm. okay. and then uh, we wanted to know is if there was a relationship between the metalinguistic awareness uh, and their proficiency level as measured by Actful's Apple exam within okay. the span within the immersion groups so now we're not including the non-immersion groups yeah. right and then we wanted to check, is uh, there a distinction between the metalinguistic awareness across grade levels? So is there a difference between third graders and fifth graders in both the immersion Groups. and non-immersion? And why'd you choose third and fifth? I mean, you could have chosen any grade. Yeah, good question. Um, currently, Fayette County's immersion programs, their assessment um, system works with starts at third. And so they have, they take the Apple at third, at, at least that's what they did the, the two years that we collected data. Uh, third, and then fifth, and then I think eighth. And so those grade levels were on the rotation, were in the rotation. Okay. But also, um, Ballystock found that second graders... Um, showed no difference. So those in immersion and those in non-immersion showed no, showed no benefits. Right. Yet. It wasn't until fifth oh, grade that they started to show the benefits of metalinguistic awareness. So it worked out nicely because we thought, well... They test in third. Let's bump it up to third since we're a 50-50 model, and so their proficiency hopefully will be a little bit better than the second graders. And this is a, this is a, a what you might call a full immersion or just immersion model in Canada, where even by second they're still at like 90% in the second language. So we thought third for the testing rotation, third for um, the development of the L2 proficiency. Okay. So when you went about gathering the data, I mean you've mentioned the Apple test. Mm -hmm. yes. What other 
got a lot, a lot of data. Okay. Oh boy. One of the tests that we looked at, we uh, looked at uh, fluency, where we had them. The task was to name as many items from either a category or uh, words that begin with a certain letter, a sound, as you can. So we'd give them a minute, and they were to list as many girls' names as they could. And or, so, like categories, basically. Uh, kind of like categories. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> but, but we, we were comparing between. Yeah. yeah. So we were comparing between uh, name as many categories as you can and name as many words as you can beginning with the sound yeah. because. because you want to explain yeah, why? Yeah, because because categories are um, kind of it's they're processed differently, right? There's semantic categories, meaning like oh, hmm. and they, all the clothing. So then you know you got a shirt, you got a pants, whatever. So you're pulling the, the semantic features are similar, or they have something that that ties them together. Right. But when you're talking about the first letter of a word, now you're talking about um, the phonology. Now you're talking about okay, I got to pull in my head a. F- an F. What starts with F? And so that's different. Yeah. So those are those are also yeah. what we consider to be independent, uh, to be related to metalinguistic awareness or executive function. To and be what, able to pull those out as fast as you can. And and what we expected with that is um, with the category naming, bilinguals should be slower. They should be less effective on that because they've got two sets of vocabulary that they're drawing from for all of these categories. But they should be equally fast or faster with the sounds because they're not pulling. They're not having to separate out, oh, I'm only allowed to say these English words. So they may be thinking of, you know, pantalones and pants, but they can only say pants. But they've, in their mind, they've already processed two vocabulary words. And so they should be slower at the number of items that they produce. Or they should produce because fewer Because it was a monolingual task, don't forget. Meaning that we didn't allow Spanish. It was English. Yeah. So they had to pull clothing items in English, not from any other language. So and all these tasks were monolingual. How much slower were they? Um, than, than whom? Uh, the monolingual, like the ones not in the immersion program, was there a difference between them? Or did you all? We didn't do reaction times. Oh, okay. we, did have, um, we did number. Number. Things. So the okay. qu- right. quantity of things. Okay. Right. We had yeah. the reaction times, but for, for another task. So did task. they produce then fewer bilinguals, that is, fewer items? Well, and again, we're going to talk about this. Uh, is that the, no, 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 no. And what I'm saying is that your question is a good one because um, we don't feel, and I think, I, I don't want to, this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, <laughs> but our immersion kids are not, honestly, developing the level of proficiency that would either inhibit, that would either cause the, the, the effect that Stace mentioned, or that would facilitate metalinguistic awareness. Oh, it's kind of no. the spoiler alert. So that the proficiency levels aren't such that you're going to see this kind of effect with yeah. these kids. Do you think, though, if you had gone to an emergent setting where the kids were older and their proficiency level was higher up the chart, would there we be? We could hypothesize that probably. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, so... Uh, yeah, in our particular study, we did not detect a meaningful difference between the the immersion and the English only. As far as number of items that were articulated either in the category condition or the, um, what, what, what do we call the other one? Letter fluency, letter fluency or, or, or category fluency. Okay. So there's other items, so, so we had the Apple scores on all, whatever tests they took, so there would have been, I think some of them had as few as two, as many as four, because Apple had, has four skills. Mm-hmm. Then we had their map. We got their standardized L1 reading score, so their English reading score. We know that L1 ability is a very strong predict- predictor of L2 ability, so we got that from the district. Really, really excited about that. Of course, for the students for whom we had consent forms. Then um, we had them do other tasks. 
So you remember our dependent variable, meaning the outcome variable, the task that they did, the one that was the most important one, was make a decision, yes or no, this That's sentence is good or not. The grammaticality uh, uh, test, where basically they heard a sentence and they had to determine is it a grammatically correct sentence or is it a... Or not. Or not. And the, mixed in there were sentences that had verbs dropped or verbs uh, conjugated poorly or anomalous sentences like, you know, where does a chair like to sail, mm -hmm. uh, where they, it, yeah. that is correct grammatically, but... So that was one measure. So we have those numbers, right? Okay. Then we have uh, visual spatial, visual, visual, visual spatial task, which is indexes um, certain type of intelligence. So they had to match patterns and say, okay, here's, a, here's this pattern and there's a piece missing of this, there's, there's six, yeah, six, right? Six shapes with different patterns on them and then there'd be a part missing and then they had to go below, oh no, I'm sorry, there'd be so one. So you have to imagine a puzzle mm -hmm. with a piece missing right. and then there are six options below that puzzle and they have to pick out which piece is missing from the right. puzzle. And it's a pattern. It's, like, okay. it's not like a picture of people, it's just a, a graphic pattern. So, so that um, is what? called Raven's Progressive Matrices, so they get more difficult. So the higher you score, then the higher okay, you're that's the supposed Raven. to index okay. intelligence. I mean, people could argue whether that's real intelligence or not. But well, it, yeah. it, it measures your ability to see patterns and anticipate future patterns and yeah. logic. So, so did we, you all administer that, or did the schools already have that? We administered okay. that. Yeah, so we, put this, we worked with the ANS, College of ANS, with this office, actually. No, the ninth, the guys over there. Yeah. And they wrote some code and they put this online and we did it in their computer lab and it was wow. a ton. And we got consent forms, we used grant money to get toys, I mean the whole shoot match. But we still haven't, we still haven't talked about um, all the measures that we did. Did we get? The mother's education. Right, so then we, we got um, demographic information. So we got mother's education, we got number of language spoke, languages spoken at home. Which you know, which language is spoken most? Uh, specifically, asking about Spanish and English and other languages, and mothers and fathers' education. So th those are all the data points that we had on these kids. Um, in the first go around, we didn't get a t uh, as many kids as we needed to, and even the second go around, of course, we, we would have liked to have gotten 100% more. But right. we think we got enough. We're, we've been accepted to present at the American Association for Applied Linguistics in March, the second round, and we presented the first round as well. But then um, the findings from the first round. We do have those. We do know what those. I don't know if that's where okay. we're at with that. Yeah. So let's let's go on. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the findings. Yeah. So um, to come back to this question then, of what what was the outcome of all the data that you managed to collect in maps and apples and demographics? <laughs> ravens. Maps and apples. <laughs> ravens. <laughs> maps, apples, and yeah, ravens. No maps, no apples, and no ravens. But they all <laughs> sounds like red. Right do ravens eat apples? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a medieval uh, pharmacy is exactly. where um, um, Where does this leave us with um, the assessing questions. their, yeah, the research questions, assessing well, their metalinguistic awareness and also recommendations for what we do in yeah, classrooms right, right. to yeah. increase yeah. it because that's yeah. our goal. Well, one of the, the first question that we had is, is there a difference between the immersion and the English? And what we found is at the third grade level, there was no significant difference between the immersion and the English. Uh, students. First time around. We have not analyzed the second yeah. round of data, but we don't think we're going to find many differences. Yeah. So. And the original study was second grade, so you all did second, third. and they did second, she we did second, you all did third. third. Yes. Okay, and, gotcha. and still no, no benefit, no, okay. no significant benefit. Gotcha. Um, 
Um, and, but we did find a significant difference at the fifth grade level. Um, and so we tried to, fig tried to pinpoint what test actually helped or which data point actually helped contribute most to that difference. And not surprising, the MAP reading score was... More so than immersion group. Does that make sense? Huh. So, yeah. So it didn't matter as much if they were immersion or non-immersion. It mattered what their English abilities were English in reading. reading score. English yeah. reading score was. Wow. And... Uh, their mother's education, which is wholly unsurprising. Par for the course. It, right? it's, we, that is an expectation. Not fathers. Why, mothers. Yeah, why is there mother's education? Because mother's, mother's uh, education, as Bialystok points out in her piece, is uh, a good index of socioeconomic um, level and educational attainment. And so the mother sets the bar on what the home looks like as far as literacy, Exposure to prints, mm. exposure to all Very things language. There's also a significant correlation between mother's education and father's education. So we we could okay. have chosen father's education, but the traditional measure is the mother's. The research education. Yeah, uses mothers. So that was so so we we weren't totally surprised by this um, because that's our that's what we're, our contention really is is that the children in the fifty now don't. Don't get us wrong, they're learning Spanish. It's not that they're not learning Spanish. But the levels of Spanish, and maybe we should talk about Apple before I make this the, the final record. Well, I was just going to make one last comment about the differences. Is that we, we did find through the Ravens Colored matrices. Progressive Matrices that that is not a significant contributor to their... So IQ, so IQ is unrelated to metalinguistic okay. ability, which also is yeah. expected. And then we had the uh, impact of, of the Spanish. So we want to see if the Spanish proficiency within the immersion group made a difference, right? Because that's, that's what the hypothesis is, is, that the higher your proficiency, the more likely that you will uh, reap the benefits, the cognitive benefits of being more proficient. Right. And again, what we found is that the Apple scores were not significant right. at the third grade or at the fifth grade level in the, as a predictor of whether or not they were able to tell the difference between so those, sentences. those sentences. But... Again, map reading score and mother's education were both significant, much more so than proficiency level, much more so than fluency, much more than... Okay, did you all have data that looked at the map score of the non-immersion versus the immersion kids? Yes. Was there a difference? Yes, so what we want to do now, so, so basically we ha those yeah. were numbers were limited. So we would love to come back in a year and tell you what the second round, because we have better numbers, more numbers, and that, if that influences you know, how large a uh, sample you need to get uh, significant differences and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to, and we need to control for those variables. We need okay. to say, okay, let's control for this L1 reading variable and say, okay, kids who are doing, doing better, we, need, we, we expect a statistical model to say, well, then they need to do better on this, this other measure, which would have been the metalinguistic awareness measure. Right. So we need to come back, and hopefully we have different, you know, it's a different story. But what we're seeing is that the 50-50 model, insofar as metalinguistic awareness is concerned, is not reaping the benefits that it does when you're looking at native or highly proficient. By the fifth grade. Wow. By the fifth grade. By the fifth grade. Right. We, That's right. Yeah, and we, we're, we have, the first time we did the study, we did not have enough participants at the 10th grade level to to really to do, yeah. do anything. Because we included 10th grade. Yeah. We went up to Bryan Station High School. Yeah. And, and, and we collected, you know, 130 students and got eight consent, consent forms, forms, which does not That's challenging. give you enough yeah. to do but anything. The, so so the, the next thing that we wanted to talk, that I think we need to talk about, is, and as far as the result is what you were just asking, Laura, which is very interesting, 
what are the, the, the demographic um, and academic differences that we see just yeah. be, just between the kids? So we so we have, you know, what's the average attainment level of the mothers in the immersion program versus the mothers in the non-immersion? What's the average MAP score? That's where you, some very interesting information. So we're hoping to get two articles out of that. So maybe we can highlight some of those differences. Yeah, one of... Um, what we've noticed is that the mother's education level among third graders and in the English only and third graders in the immersion only was significantly different. So that, and so our... And that's not actually surprising. It's not I surprising. Mean, it's a self-selected right. group. It's, right. it's not everyone who's doing this. It's just those parents who see second language as a benefit for their students right. and want them to get this additional language and so yeah we so almost on a five point scale four point scale we had almost an entire point difference yeah five so your mean education uh, again we don't have the instrument in front of us 3.6 for the english and 4.5 for so the immersion. it's it's almost the difference of um, mothers with kids in the immersion program all graduated from college with a master's degree and those not in the immersion program graduated just with no additional school. High school. Okay. So, so, so it's a huge difference. It's, it's huge, a big yeah. difference, yeah. So that's something that, and then even in the fifth grade in level. Fifth grade was not too different. It, well, but it still was point eight. I mean, it was almost a full point. Yeah. It was still different, meaning there was no case where the immersion mothers at either the third, fifth, or tenth had less education than the non-immersion. Than the non -immersion. Non. And so, so this, this hmm. kind of leads us to believe, and, and I think the, the district knows this, is that the immersion program is, is is somewhat appealing to more of an elite or highly educated kind of block of our society here, right? right. I mean, and and so that's that's an interesting finding because do they want to change that? Would that change our results? Um, and those are you know implications that are more programmatic in nature, but I think they're still important. And that's not. I mean, right. there are plenty of studies that show that those. Uh, who are first to embrace another language are those who have higher educations and have more experience traveling. Those are the people who study languages right. generally. And was there? Oh, go ahead. But we know that the kids themselves all have the potential to have the same level of monolinguistic ability, right? So it'd be yes. interesting to see in a true immersion program mm -hmm. um, where everybody in the school who's in this neighborhood or this part of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, gains these kind of benefits, right? Which is what the other stuff is arguing, right? Because yep. that one is true immersion, one hundred percent of the day. Yeah. And that's that's so. So now you get to the pedagogical implications. What does this mean for our immersion program? What does it mean for our education system here in Fayette County? It means if you want to reap some of these, I don't want to call them non-linguistic, but I don't want to call them peripheral. But if you want to reap some of these cognitive, let's just go there, cognitive benefits that come with bilingualism. It, it takes pretty strong commitment. You've got to start kindergartners at 90-10 or 100-0. I mean, that's the, that's oh, the, okay. the proportion, proportion rather than this 50-50 all the way through. Uh, the Canadian model uh, seems to work. Now, their oral production always is lagging behind, but if you were to take the average, you know, if you were to compare the oral production of the kids coming out of the Canadian immersion programs and our, ours here in Fayette County, yeah. now the question is whether or not our communities could bear that, could deal with that, emotionally, psychologically, socially, to say, I don't think we could. I mean, we're not in the Southwest where you can make a claim, you know, with those dual programs. But to tell, you know, a school that's 95% uh, 
uh, English dominant or monolingual. And then to say, now your kid's going to be learning Spanish 100% of the day. They get nervous about test scores. Mm -hmm. They get nervous. I mean, so it, it's not sustainable. They, they right. being the parents, 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 parents yeah. also the administrators. The they get nervous about it. The mayor, the administrator. Yeah. So then, and then there's, there's obviously um, some uh, misconceptions in regard to language acquisition in general that we're always kind of fighting against. So it's, it's, a, it's an uphill battle if you wanted to change the 50-50 model that's in Fayette County to something else and get closer to reaping those. So can we come back then to the Apple scores? Because you said that the Apple scores were actually indicating they were learning Spanish, yes. which has great benefits. Yes. Cognitive. Social. Yes, cognitive, uh, mental, linguistic awareness uh, abilities aside. So the goals for language learning, this comes back to what you just said, Alan, where there are misconceptions, mm -hmm. right, are multifaceted. Absolutely. There are cognitive, there are social benefits, there are professional benefits, there is self-actualization. Self-actualization. Yeah, yeah. sure. I love Russia, mm -hmm. so I decided to do Russian. Or I said I could learn Russian, and I did. Yes. Yeah. And it gave me a sense of accomplishment that yeah, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Right? So you're not advocating eliminate immersion no, or only no. make it 90-10, right? No. You're saying you have to think about a broader range. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, immersion program is not all about metalinguistic awareness. And we're not, we're not going to say that. We're not going to argue that, oh, drop the program because you're not getting your metalinguistic, you know, outcomes that you want. No. But there's something to be said about upping the, upping the ante as far as your proficiency levels that you're shooting for. There's something to be said about if I come out of an immersion program and if they sit down with me as a professor of Spanish and I talk to them, wow, you spent 12 years in an immersion program, doesn't seem like it. That's where I'm kind of, meaning the, the language piece in a very monolingual society like we have in Lexington is going to be tough to want to push more, yeah. to go, be, go further than we've gone right now. And that's not as hard when you're in an Arizona, you're in a New Mexico or something like that. Well, and, and that's, I guess, that's the point is we know that there are these, these cognitive metalinguistic benefits that you can get from an immersion program. And we agree that this ought to be a justification for having an immersion program. But if the research doesn't show that we're getting them, then we need to change the program or add to the program or require more of the students and parents in order to get these benefits if we choose to seek them. Or... And, I should say, not and, or, oh, maybe an or, or an and, um, depending on how you, you know, <laughs> interpret that conjunction. But um, we need to give, we need to put forth realistic expectations. A lot of the lay public think, my kid's going to speak Spanish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit, maybe, yeah. But a lot of these parents don't speak another language, so they don't know how good their kid's Spanish is, and they've never got to a level of proficiency in another language to be able to make any comparison. And so that's what the, the average parent in the immersion program in Fayette County, and again, I'm making generalizations here, but I think they're not as informed about language acquisition and about bilingualism at, much at all. And so they're just happy to get their kids in the program, but we need the parents to kind of do quality control and insist, hey, how is my kid's Spanish coming? Because it doesn't just happen. They need massive mm -hmm. amounts. The, the thing that I teach yeah. my, my SLA kids, students here in the UK, is immersion programs are great. And, and childhood acquisition works if you have massive amounts of meaningful input. That's when the implicit acquisition takes place. If you don't, the kids aren't cognitively developed enough 
to be able to bootstrap their way up into levels of proficiency that we can rather quickly. Mm -hmm. And if you're not giving massive amounts of meaningful input, then you're not taking advantage of these implicit learning mechanisms that kids have, all of us have, little kids. Well, and the other argument that we haven't made and probably will not make in the paper, but um, you, you can't help but think about at the college level is the importance of studying abroad. So these elementary school kids don't, there's no plan for them to go abroad necessarily unless they are of a higher socioeconomic status. Same with the middle school kids. There's no, that I know of, plan to consistently take a set of them to a mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, Spanish-speaking country. Maybe, Laura, are you heading off somewhere? No. No. <laughs> no, I'm agreeing with you. You are yeah. correct. It's tough. It's yeah. tough. Yeah. To, to Very hard. And it's people. difficult to get that many people to go. I mean, funding purposes, time requirements, right. um, you know, legal issues and everything. So, And then to go also for a significant amount of time, mm. you know, to just to go for a week, you know, yeah, doesn't really enhance much. Mm. Um, it kind of solidifies what you've learned, but it doesn't enhance anything. Well, um, from this, what future research would you suggest be done? I mean, you've kind of made some allusions to this, but what would you like to see be expanded on with this study? The biggest thing that we needed was more numbers, more more, more bodies, yeah, more, <laughs> more, more consent forms, yeah. And uh, one of the things that we looked at too was the difficulty level of the initial uh, grammaticality sentences that we gave. And what we saw is there were there were only one or two that were really high on the level that really separated out the people. I mean, there were some sentences that every single student, no matter whether they were immersion or or non-immersion. They got it correct, and it's while that's nice, it doesn't help separate doesn't them help out right. at all. So what we what we did uh, with between our last study and the most uh, recent studies, we we ran a, a, an analysis to determine the level of difficulty for each of them, and we made them a lot more difficult. We tried to up the difficulty so that that they would be more. Um, predictive for us so that we would know whether or not they're separating kids from those who, who have the ability and those who don't. Mm -hmm. So Good. as far as future research, we need to do more research and law with large numbers of monolingual speakers and to say, here's a bunch of sentences and see how they score and see if they separate monolinguals and say, wow, they really struggle with that. Ooh, that's a good one. Let's put that in. Mm -hmm. So that so that the, the numbers we get from the, meta -ling the, the sentence judgment task are really robust as far as if there's differences, yeah, because the, the sentences are, are maximally efficient in, in separating them out. And I think as far as for future research, um, we need to do more with partial immersion programs in general. To see, there's yeah. a lot of them in the country. Um, we're one, our district has one of them. We need to start looking not just at some of these standardized language tests, but we need to start looking at other things. I mean, maybe maybe we start looking at cultural awareness or sensitivity. There's there's some battery of tests you can give kids to start. You know, these, these kids do have non-native, or native Spanish-speaking, non-native English-speaking instructors from different countries. Is that beneficial? Is it not? The district has a very strict policy that they have to be native speakers. Is that helping our cultural awareness and sensitivity with these kids? I don't know. I think I think that that's some research that needs to be done. It's very hard to get out for a, mm -hmm. for a young child, but I mean, you're fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I think you can start determining awareness of other ethnic groups and other you know linguistic groups and seeing whether they're having any impact. Because we say that we always say that language learning does all these things, but I think we have to empirically show it. 
especially in a partial immersion program where millions of dollars are going into these programs and what kind of outcomes are we getting? And I think so in, in our district, we need to be willing and able and, and, and have the wherewithal to, to do those sorts of studies because I don't think that Yeah, and I should say, I think we're going in the right direction. I, I, I don't think Alan or I want to come off as saying that it's not a good program because it is a great program. It's just our goal is to provide evidence that, to show that, yes, we are getting these benefits and we are getting these the, the students are growing in these ways because of, of what they're doing. And our data collection is limited. I mean, we can't collect, we, you know, we can't, we, we, we were lucky to get what we got. So, I mean, you know, you can't have kids taking, you know, hours and hours of tests to say, well, we want to know about culture. We want to know about this. So, right. yeah, it's true. We, and we are not, we can't be the only researchers doing this right. here, here in Fayette County. But, but I think there's a lot, you know, there's uh, a field out there ready to be harvested. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing is we're so grateful for those who did participate because it, it was 45 to 50 minutes to complete these, these battery of tests, and uh, we're grateful that the teachers found the time and oh, yeah. resources right. to Everyone was cooperative. That, that yeah, was, that was we nice. We are so grateful for that. Yeah. We're just still ringing our, shaking our, our, our fists at those parents who have those consent forms. <laughs> Signed, sitting on their tables. Sitting somewhere. on their tables. <laughs> well, we'll say a thought just came to me. It would be interesting to see the study replicated where kids who do maybe speak Spanish at home, mm -hmm. heritage speakers, mm -hmm. um, are participatory and to see if their awareness, so you've got a kid in a partial immersion program who speaks Spanish at right. home. Right, and there were some of those. That would be really interesting, and that's a huge discussion in the United States right now, is you know what's the best way to educate children who do know another language? I think what you all are doing could really add to that. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Whether you're showing the metalinguistic awareness or not in this particular study, or down the line if you get the 10th graders to agree with me, yeah. um, and, and as they get more immersion or partial immersion, they get better. Um, without the studies, we cannot know what our best practices right. are. Yeah. We cannot know how we should be serving these <laughs> children. Because no one disagrees that language study has all of these benefits. How do we make it best for them to cover yeah. as many bases as we can. Yeah, yeah and I would say the research is, as has been done, that those kids that you're talking about, they do show metalinguistic awareness. Hmm. Meaning that when you take a kid that's a native bilingual, whatever term you want to use, right. um, a native bilingual, they are showing better um, levels of metalinguistic awareness. Bailey Stock has shown that. Wow. Yeah, so, so remember, she did, she, she was a step down from the native. Okay, so, so so there's the native, like the kids that you're talking about, they, right. they, they figure that out, they do. But then you take a step down and you go to her immersion, non-native speakers, right? So they're still emergent bilinguals, but they're better than ours. Right. And then you go to ours, so we took right. two steps down from the native, which gotcha. is the research has already shown. So the research shown when you have a native, when you're like raised in Spanish at home, then you go to school, when you're in second, third, fourth grade, then your metalinguistic awareness is better than monolinguals. Research has shown that. She worked with a immersion program that was more of a 90-10, and you know, and then gradually the amount of English goes up, and we worked even a step down from that. Okay. So we're kind of too removed from the most gotcha. compelling evidence that yes, metalinguistic awareness in bilingualism, in like true bilingualism, is is definitely a benefit. So you're you're we're comparing, I, I, like Alan says, you're you're looking at the bilingual who who gets, uh, you know, five to ten thousand hours a year of the second language versus these immersion students who get maybe 2,000 a year versus 
our immersion students mm-hmm. that maybe get 500 to 1,000 years, yeah. or 1,000 hours okay. of Spanish. There's a, that's a significant difference to drop down right. to a quarter of the input. Yeah. And there's a researcher that we cite in our presentation that's, that has a, a hypothesis about that, that he says there's a threshold level at which, until you reach that, um, first of all, there's a threshold level of language acquisition at which you can communicate and there's no pathology, right? Like you can communicate like a normal human being. Then there's another level at which until you reach that in the second language, in the bi- in, in two both languages, you don't reap the cognitive benefits. Huh. Make sense? Yeah. So until you reach a certain level in your language, then, and we all reach it, right, With by the time we're three or four, but then to get to reap the benefits of the cog- meta- cog- meta-linguistic and whatnot, cognitive benefits, in, um, you have to reach a certain level in both languages, mm-hmm. primarily the second, right? Which is generally not seen even in simultaneous bilinguals until after the age of eight. Okay. So, okay. so that's, that's kind of the big picture. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. Um, it's been wonderful hearing about your research and to have two professors from UK share. It's, it's been quite amazing. If listeners have any questions or want to contact you, do you mind providing a way to do that? Sure. sure. They can contact us at email. Um, my email address is sdubravac, S-D-U-B-R-A-V-A-C, at uky.edu. Mine is even easier. It's A-L-A-N dot B-R-O-W-N at uky.edu. Thank you so much. And if any of the listeners have consent forms, send them in. <laughs> <laughs> As we wind down our podcast, it's time for the polyglotting news. Jean-Marie, what university updates do you have? UK is continuing its annual exploration of the Year of Europe. Arts and Sciences has created a great list of events for this year. Upcoming events include the next Year of Europe film series installment and a talk on the Romani people and their European context. More information on the calendar of events may be found at europe.as.uky.edu. It's study abroad time at universities now and students are getting their applications ready for study in university-led programs and in programs provided by national organizations. Many do internships and service learning abroad as well. One model is to take an on-campus course that culminates in a study abroad trip. At UK, the Gaines Center Bingham Seminar in the Humanities provides faculty and students a chance to explore a subject not in the university course offerings on a regular basis and to do so on site. The seminar meets on campus according to a regular course pattern during this coming spring and then the travel portion begins in May. This year, professors Jackie Murray and Valerio Cadesi Valeri are teaching a course called Ancient Greek Literature and Culture in Rome and Southern Italy. For more information, you can contact Jackie Murray at jmu245 at uky.edu. Thank you, Jean-Marie. You're welcome. Now from our KWLA board, we have Lucas Gravitt, President-Elect. Thank you, Laura. Greetings from the KWLA Executive Board. It has been an exciting period of time post-conference, and we are looking forward to all that ACTFL has in store for language teachers at their annual conference in San Diego, California. KWLA will have two representatives at the Delegates Assembly, President Sarah Meredith and myself, President-elect Lucas Gravitt. In addition to a large contingency from the Bluegrass State, most notably our very own Dr. Jackie Van Houten as ACTFL President, we look forward to all that ACTFL has in store. 
The PD committee has been working hard generating our first made-for-internet webinar as our webmaster continues to work on designing a self-contained and automated webinar platform directly from our website. The Outreach Clearinghouse is, as usual, diligently working on the Language Talk podcast programming which continues to grow thanks to you, the listener. The conference committee has also been working hard to nail down details for the 2016 and 2017 conferences. The conference will stay in Louisville, Kentucky for the next two years and will switch to the Crown Plaza Hotel and Conference Center at the Louisville Airport. We are very excited to begin a relationship with this new venue and we look forward to continued preparation. Finally, we continue working with our state legislators on the seal of biliteracy for high school students' diplomas. This continues to gain a lot of strength in Kentucky, and if you would like more information, you can check out sealofbiliteracy.org for more information, and you can also email us at KWLA. As always, if you are interested in serving on a committee or might be interested in learning more about board positions opening up next fall, please contact us at info at kwla.org. Wonderful. Thank you, Lucas. This wraps up our podcast on second language research. I wish to thank my co-hosts, Dr. Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby for joining me and Dr. Stace Dubervac and Alan Brown for sharing their work. And as always, the University of Kentucky for providing the technology, location, and broadcasting of our podcast. This is Laura Roche-Youngworth for Language Talk KWLA saying au revoir and happy teaching.